0: Go ahead and open your Bibles to James chapter two. And you know the text that Devin just read is um, I think our fifth or sixth uh, message in this series. If you're new with us, this is how we teach is we'll pick a book of the Bible and we'll just work through it. Verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, explaining it. And applying it. And we've come to this part of James, um, and I made a joke about it being heavy, but honestly, this book's like that. Like this, this book, James wasn't messing around. You know, He wasn't writing to tickle people's ears. He was writing to help them. He was writing to give them a sense of life and to ask some hard questions that was going to lead them to a greater faith. And so we've been talking about this faith and works dynamic. It's certainly a theme throughout the book of James. In fact, next week, as Lloyd unpacks um, the passage that comes next, we're going to get into the heart of faith and works. And, you know, some of the challenges that people have in interpreting James based on next week's passage. But really that faith works dynamic is all throughout the book. And so we've been using this illustration of the coin I have here in my pocket. Coin has two sides. We've said just like a coin has two sides, Faith and works are two sides of the same thing. And this coin has a faith side, as we've called it, you know, in God we trust right there. And then there's another side that represents the works. And we keep coming back to this analogy because it's really helpful. What dawned on me this week is that I think it's not just that you shouldn't separate faith from works. I think James is saying you can't separate faith from works. Not if the faith is genuine, So let me unpack that a little bit because I think there's some uh, profound human insight, uh, some uh, reflection on the nature of human beings in this. Your outer actions will reflect your inner beliefs. They just will. Like over time, that's just going to be true. You can't really separate what you believe and what you desire on the inside from what you pursue on the outside. If you truly believe something's gonna bring you life, whether it's a relationship or a career or a goal or a dream, you're going to pursue that thing to the best of your ability. You're gonna take it as far as you can. Whatever you really believe is going to bring you life, that's what you're going to go after. That's what your external actions and motives and, and, and everything is gonna be about. So now think about being a Christian, okay? To literally be a follower of Jesus, which is what a the word Christian means, essentially means, it means to believe that Jesus is life. Okay. That he's the source of life more than anything else, higher than anything else. And actually believing that, not just giving lip service to it, this is what James keeps saying over and over again, don't just give lip service to it, but actually believing that will cause you to realign your pursuits, will cause you to change the choices that you make. Another way to think about it, it would be impossible to actually believe what scripture says about Jesus and the gospel and and really just say, hey, I'm a Christian. It'd be impossible to honestly believe that on the inside and for it not to show up on the outside. That's this idea of faith and works. James keeps saying it over and over again. You can't really separate the two. True faith is visible faith. Actual faith is faith that works. It's a two-sided coin. Think about it this way. There are no one-sided coins. It's like, I don't know what that would be. And so what James is asking, and this this is kind of heavy, if you find yourself holding one that only has one side, you need to ask yourself, what is it that you're actually holding? That's the book of James, all right? Now, this book confronts us, it challenges us every week, and I want you to know, Lloyd and I would not be doing our job if we did not allow this text, for the weight of this text to, to fall on us, collectively as a body. But... You must also know that the Spirit's intention and purpose in every word is life for you, not death for you. That's what God intends to use this book in your life to do, is to bring you closer to life and further from death, not the other way around. So here's why this matters. The book of James is not all about saying, okay, men and women of the church, take your faith and add a whole bunch of works to it. It's not about loading you down. It's like, you got faith, now you gotta take on some work so you can have both. It's not actually doing that, all right? Rather, it's written to help us examine our faith and ask, do I actually believe this or am I just going through the motions? And James is gonna say, the way that you'll know if you actually believe or just going through the motions is by how you live your life. And so here's literally what he said so far. Look at the choices you make. Listen to the words you speak. Look at how you respond to trials. Look at how you engage temptation, how you spend your resources. That was last week. Those things are tests and they're gonna reveal what you actually really believe. And in today's passage, he's saying, here's another test. Take a look at how you treat people because how you treat people reveals more about what's going on inside your heart than almost anything else. Okay, so that's all set up, okay? And that's important because we're gonna come back to some of these concepts. That's the whole book, but it's certainly true about today's text. 13 verses today, they're one coherent stream of thought. We're gonna see a problem, a solution, and an application. Problem, solution, application. There's your outline. Let's start with the problem. Verse one. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. All right, he's stating the problem uh, right from the get-go. Let's talk about favoritism. What does that actually mean? Well, it's not just this sense of like, and I just like some personality types better than others, or you know, I get along better with some people than others. It's actually a little darker than that. It's a little deeper than that. It's a little more inner heart related than that. It's the impulse to interact with people based on your perceived value of them rather than loving them as human beings. And, and we'll, we'll tease that out. At its core, it's a failure of love. It's a failure to love people. Now, right off the bat, verse one, you see that the problem James is going after is not an external problem. He's gonna illustrate it with an external example, but the problem's actually an inner problem. He says it's an attitude, right? Do not hold your faith in glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He's saying there are two things inside of you that don't mix. They should not go together. They're incongruent faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and this attitude of sort of dividing people according to the value that you think they can bring to you and discriminating against them based on that. So then he's now gonna give us an outward example of the internal attitude. Let's look at verses two to four. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, And you pay special attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Now, here's what's interesting about this example. On the surface, we would all be like, I wouldn't do that. You know, if a poor guy walks in, I'm not gonna tell him to go sit on the floor. You know, I'm not gonna, you know, whatever. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna see some guy with like the fancy watch and the good, nice suit and say, you come sit in the front row. Like, well, I'm not gonna do that, all right? And so most of us would say, I don't discriminate. The reason we say I don't discriminate is because no one believes that they're prejudiced. Like, no one does. Like, we don't actually believe that we're prejudiced. But remember, James is going after an inner attitude, right? Which then has an external, um, um, Uh, motivation, or it's not an external motivation, but an external, it plays out. It plays out externally, but it's an internal attitude. So here's what's going on in this text. At first you say, okay, Rob said it was a failure to love people. They did not love the poor man. They did love the rich man. That's actually not true. In reality, they did not love either one. Well, what do you mean? Well, they clearly didn't love the poor man. They discriminated against him based on his clothing and his social Status, But they also did not actually love the rich man. I think what's going on is they're only seeing his wealth. They're not seeing the person. They're just seeing the clothing, the status. That's true for both men. So here's the deeper problem that James is unearthing. Apart from a transformed heart, we will interact with people selfishly based on their value to us. That's the deeper problem. In other words, we, all, we just do this naturally, instinctively. We, we evaluate, can this person add value to my life? If so, we'll move toward them and treat them well. If not, we'll ignore them or sometimes worse. But we tend to interact with people selfishly based on our perceived value of them for us rather than loving them just for who they are. Now, why did the church members discriminate between the wealthy man and the poor man? Perceived value. Okay, well, this wealthy man, maybe he'll put something in the offering plate. Okay, or even at a more subtle level than that, it's like, like being associated with someone of wealth and power and influence makes us feel better about ourselves. You know, so we have this instinct. It's like, I, that guy's famous or that guy's wealthy. Or, I, I wanna know him. You know, I want him to know me. I, I want him to like me, But the poor man, the poor man doesn't have anything to offer us. In fact, the poor man, not only does he not have anything to offer me, but he's so needy that he might, you know, I, if I associate and hang out with him and become friends with him and welcome him, I might have to give. I might have to help him because he's so needy. He's going to suck life out of me. This other guy has something to offer me. I'm going to go over here. Now, here's what's going on here. We interact with people, what James is saying here, based on what they can do for us, or out of fear of what they could do to us. So the rich man, he might move me forward. The poor man, he might move me backward. see, I I don't want that. I don't want that. Now, when you really see this for what it is, you'll see it has nothing to do with love at all. It's it's not even the, the plane of love. It's more like market style exchanges. If you've got something to offer me, I'll give you something. If you've got, if you're going to threaten me, I'm going to treat you at a distance. Market style exchanges. And if you look closely at your heart, you will find that this is the basic economics of all of your relationships. Okay? Because it's not natural for you to love people unconditionally. It's not. That's not your instinct. Apart from a transformed heart, You will interact with people based on desire for what they have for you or fear of what they could do to you rather than out of loving the person for who they are. Uh, Let me illustrate this a couple of ways. For a lot of years, I taught, uh, at Chick-fil-A, I taught customer service classes. And I did that when I was uh, full-time on their staff. And then even after I left, I would still do that as a contract instructor. And here's what we would always try to help people that interact with guests at Chick-fil-A understand. We would help them shift from what we called a transactional mindset to a relational mindset. And here's what that meant. We, we would train the cashiers at Chick-fil-A, when someone comes up to order their food, they are not a $10 bill. They are not a $20 bill. They are not a problem that's getting in your way because they can't make up their mind for what they want. You see? You see, they're not a $10 bill. They're not a $20 bill. They're not a problem. What are they? They're a person with a story. And so this phrase we would use over and over again, and we had this like powerful video that would illustrate it. Every life has a story. And if you can get people to see that and shift them from a transactional perspective to a relational perspective, well, now they can interact with people in a way that will shape that. So now you realize, okay, that mom with three screaming kids, she's not a problem that's just getting in your way. She's had a day. How can you help her? Can you carry the tray to the table for her? Can you assist her? How about that simple little my pleasure with a smile on your face? You know, this is where all that came from. Now, the same transactional mindset that, that people tend to have in a retail establishment, and that, that's why like, Chick-fil-A customer service is so surprising because you're expecting transactional when you go into a quick service restaurant. Instead, you get Relational. I just told you the secret sauce, okay? So, you know. But anyway, this actually dominates all of our relationships when you really think about it, a transactional mindset. It dominates all of our relationships, even the people that you most love. I'm reminded of this every time I sit down with a couple to do premarital counseling, okay? You know, they're sitting next to each other on the couch and like, you know there's premarital counseling. So they sit really close together, you know, and they're looking at each other. It's like lovey-dovey eyes. And you know, as I'm getting to know them, I'll always ask them like, what, what, why do you want to marry this person? You know, and I don't mean, it's not a trick question. I'm just really getting to know them. Like, what is it about this person that you love? Why do you want to marry them? And you know, they're always going to say something like, I love them. Like he's, he's just a man of God. You know, and he's going to say, oh, she's just you know, the way she treats people and like she makes me a better me, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and really, <laughs> this is how it goes. OK, and like that, that's where I was 18 years ago. Same spot. Here's what they're really saying. OK, you want to know what they're really saying? And, and I'm not dogging this. All right. This is just this is where you start in a marriage. They're saying, he or she makes me feel fantastic and is the answer to my loneliness or my insecurity or my need to be desired. He or she's the answer to that. This person wanting to spend their life with me means there must be something good or beautiful in me. Now, you see how this is me oriented, right? Now, uh, Jody and I, true story, we really liked this country song when we were going through our engagement. And uh, some of you'll remember this song, John Michael Montgomery sang this song, I love the way you love me. You know, it's like some of you can hear the song. He said, I like this about you, I like that about you, but I love the way you love me. I don't know if more true lyrics have ever been written. Right? And when I started to see that later in life, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is true. I love the way she loves me. I love her for me, not for her. This is transactional. It's actually not what Jesus is going to call us to his real genuine love, which we'll talk about when we get to verse eight. Okay, so there's the problem. It's this transactional interaction based on what they have for me or sometimes the fear of what they could do to me. We're going to categorize people according to that. We're going to interact with them that way transactionally, not relationally, not actually with genuine love. Now that he's identified the problem, James is going to explain why it's a problem. Look at verse five to seven. Listen, my beloved brethren. Anytime he pulls out beloved brethren, he's putting his pastor hat on. He's saying, I love you, men and women. I love you, brothers and sisters. So listen to this. It really matters. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? Here's essentially what he's saying. The reason this kind of so-called love is a big problem is because God does not view people that way. God does not interact with people transactionally. Like God is different and you bear the image of God, men and women. You have the spirit of God in you and you should reflect the value of the Father in the way that you interact with people, particularly in this instance, the poor and the rich. Let's go back to verse five and unpack it. It's an important one. God chose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. James likely has in mind the the famous first line from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's something very interesting. The gospel, both historically and even today in modern time, tends to flourish in conditions of economic poverty. It it does. It tends to flourish in conditions of economic poverty. Why is that? Why? Because poor people are very aware of their need. And it's not a big step from them to say, I'm needy materially. I'm needy physically. I'm also needy spiritually. I'm poor economically and I'm spiritually poor as well. What is spiritual poverty? Spiritual poverty is being convinced that you have nothing good to offer God on your own. Like you you are naked morally. You are bankrupt spiritually. You're impoverished. You are 100% dependent on something outside of yourself to rescue you. That's... That's spiritual poverty now, wealthy people. And I'm putting myself in this category, relatively speaking, wealthy people, right? Wealthy people tend to have a harder time seeing themselves that way. Like the material wealth can sometimes translate over into pride in other areas of life, not always, but it just tends to sneak up on us. Think about the term independently wealthy. It's an interesting idea, right? So the idea behind independently wealthy is, you know, you get to a certain place with your assets and your resources that you don't need anything else besides what you bring to the table. you don't have to have a job. You think about a job. A job is actually exchanging your time for monetary. It's an exchange. You don't even need to do that anymore. You can spend your time however you want. You don't have to depend on anybody's mercy or handout. You are independent. Now... That may be a fine goal from a material standpoint, but it's very easy for independence to become an identity that subtly shapes how you view your spiritual condition. It it just, it can go that way. And then you're in trouble. And then you're in trouble. Listen, all human beings are needy in the sense that we're not independent. We are creatures, we are created. By a creator and we are dependent upon our creator for every breath, it is often the materially poor that can see that most clearly. Need is not a foreign thing for them. Do you see? This is why the gospel tends to flourish in places of economic need. Now, listen, this is me putting my pastor hat on, men and women whom I love. Listen, without poverty of spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So all of us relatively wealthy people without poverty of spirit, spiritual needs, spiritual dependence, seeing your own nakedness and bankruptcy from a pure spiritual and moral perspective. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. Why not? Because you'll never need you. You'll never know you need a rescue. And so you'll never call out to the savior. Jesus said, I've come not for the healthy, but for the sick, those that recognize there's something wrong with them, call for the doctor. All right? When you not only understand your need, when you not only understand your poverty, but you embrace it, you own it for yourself, then here's what happens. This is, this is amazing. Anytime you see an outwardly poor person, like this guy that came into the assembly in this example, anytime you see an outwardly poor person in their rags, in their smelly, stinky state, you, you will say, that's how I am on the inside. Apart from Christ, I am dirty too. I have moral rags apart from the work of God in me. And once you have that attitude, it will completely change how you interact with poor people and anyone different from you, honestly. That inward realization will make you radically gracious externally in your words and your actions toward people that you think have nothing to offer you. And even people that you think have some kind of threat. You think about what's going on right now and with politics and everything else, a a lot of it's fear-driven. A lot of it's fear-driven. And what the gospel would do, (laughs) perfect love casts out fear. What the gospel would want to do is to shape us in our hearts so that we can actually love people, not for what they can gain us or what we're afraid of, but because they're human beings made in the image of God. That's what the gospel would call us to. Now, we're going to move here from the problem to the solution. And I kind of already have, but let's look at it where the text goes next. Here's the solution, starting verse 8. If however you're fulfilling the Royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all for he who said, do not commit adultery also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law." Okay, let me try to focus us on what James is saying. The solution to your problem is to interact with other people the way God designed and desired you to interact with other people, which is spelled out in the law, the whole law. The problem is the law is all or nothing. James is saying, You can't pick and choose which parts of the law you want to obey. So he uses this extreme example of adultery and murder to illustrate the absurdity of inconsistent obedience. So he's saying, Listen, uh, if you're a murderer, you can't take pride in the fact that you're not an adulterer. You see what I mean? How silly that is. He's saying, Unless you're perfect, you're a lawbreaker. And so think about us, think about us for a minute. If, if you're a, a, a good Christian, you, you come to church and you know, you, maybe you give some money, you're in a small group and you know, you're praying for your list of people in Awaken Nashville, and then you go out that door and at some point this week, someone crosses your path that, that's a different social class of you or a different race than you or a different thought process than you and, and you treat them without grace, you treat them like the way this group was treating that poor man in this particular example, like, those things shouldn't go together. It's like, you don't take pride in the fact that, oh, I'm a good church-going guy, and then you've got this other sin in your life. This is what James is saying. He's like leveling the playing field. Unless you're perfect, you're a lawbreaker. Guess what? We're lawbreakers. We're lawbreakers. Now, let's focus on verse eight, because it's a key verse in the whole passage. In other words, James is gonna say, just put your focus right here. Put your focus right here. If however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. Okay, here's the solution. When you love other people with the same measure of focus and energy and care that you give to yourself, the heart problem of favoritism goes away. And why does it go away? Because this kind of love leaves no room for market-style transactions. To actually love someone the way Jesus is calling us to, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, starts with an understanding that people are not a means to your end. They're not a means to your end. It's no longer, I love the way you love me. It's, I love you for who you are. It's not, I love you for me. It's, I love you for you. You see, now this is radical. And the wonderful thing about this solution is that it's utterly impossible for you to do apart from heart transformation, apart from the regeneration of the spirit as you're putting your faith in Christ and growing. Apart from that kind of heart transformation, it's utterly impossible for you to live out this command. Really understanding what Jesus meant when he said, you know, the the, the two commands that are equal and the highest in all the scripture, love the Lord your God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. When you really understand the idea of love, it will unmask your independence and it will make you incredibly needy because you'll see That kind of love is not in you, not naturally, not without some regeneration. Bible commentator D. Edmund Hebert put it this way. This command marks a standard that is impossible to realize apart from the indwelling love of Christ in the believer. I love that phrase, the indwelling love of Christ apart from the indwelling love of Christ in you, this is impossible. I wanna give you an illustration that was very personal for me. When I was in seminary, um, learning a lot of things and struggling with a lot of things, it it was a very hard but wonderful time in my life. And I got to a certain point where I started asking myself, why am I here? You know, why, why did I leave this other thing and go to seminary? And am I here even for the right reasons? And, and what do I actually, like, it wasn't so much a crisis of faith, but it was this crisis of, of do I even really understand my own motivations? And am I even righteous? <laughs> well, uh, through God's grace, he led me to a counselor in the area who was a man of God who just loved me. His name was Bruce Edstrom. He's, he's still a counselor in Dallas. And uh, I spent a lot of time with Bruce over a period of a few years. And I remember maybe the sixth or seventh meeting I had with Bruce, we had been talking about love and what it actually is. And we were talking about texts like this one and, and just sort of realizing that, that in my own heart, like even my wife, my girls, my parents, my siblings, like I had really have been interacting with them, you know, more from an exchange standpoint rather than a true love perspective. And in other words, like people I would come in contact with and friends and other people in the seminary is kind of like, I want you to think well of me. I want you to be proud of me. I want you to think I'm talented. I want you to think I'm gifted. Like that's gonna be my interaction with you, you see. And so I remember just really struggling with this and walking in his office at the very beginning of the session, this is like six or seven session. I said, Bruce, I don't think I've ever loved anyone. Not like this. Now, what what I expected Bruce to say, and kind of what I was hoping he would say is, um, Rob, don't beat yourself up. No one's perfect. Instead, I got something more wonderful than that. Bruce looked at me and with tears in his eyes and a smile on his face, he said, you are starting to understand love. And you are starting to understand your need for Jesus. Now, the solution to our problem is genuine love, which you do not have in you. And so where do you go with that? What do you do? The solution to our problem is genuine love. That comes only through genuine faith in Jesus which takes us to our application in the next verse of our text. Look at verse 12. So speak and so act. In other words, he's saying, therefore, in light of all this, this is how you are to live with your speech and your actions. As those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Now, what's this all about? Lloyd talked a little bit about the law of liberty last week in in, uh, chapter one, verse 25. This phrase could also be translated, the law that sets you free. How does the law set us free? It starts by seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of it. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to complete it, but to fulfill it. And this is where the faith side of the coin begins to transform the works side of the coin, okay? So pull out your coin if you've got it with you. And I, I know some of you do, many of you don't. That's okay, you can pull out another coin or just look up here at my coin, that's fine. Pull out your coin, because this is gonna be more powerful if you're actually looking at your coin when we talk through this. We're gonna talk about the faith side of the coin than the works side of the coin. Turn the coin over to the faith side, okay? It says, in God we trust. Now listen, Professing faith in Jesus starts with putting your trust in his law keeping rather than your own. It starts with putting your trust in his love rather than yours, because you don't have it. That was the realization I had in Bruce's office. I don't love like this. You see, and he said, yes, you're starting to understand why you need a savior. It starts with that realization, recognizing your own spiritual poverty and receiving the gift of his spiritual riches in place of your spiritual rags. Now, here's why this sets you free, okay? Here's why this sets you free and begins to transform you. Because what is your deepest core desire? What is it? It's the same for every human being. And we give it a lot of different words, but but deep down, your deepest core desire is to be loved for you. Not your beauty, not your talent, not your achievement, not your goodness. Your deepest core desire is to be loved for you unconditionally, received, accepted in your nakedness, in your shabbiness, in your stench. The gospel says that is true about you through Jesus Christ. The gospel goes to the heart of your core need and says, yes, that's how I love you. While you were yet a sinner, while you were dirty, while your righteousness was still filthy rags, while you had no love in you, I died for you. Jesus said, I chose you. You are chosen. You are beloved by the father. And so actually believing this, like that's why we keep coming back to the gospel, men and women, even though many of you have heard it a thousand times, actually believing this transforms your love to be more like God's love. Because until you get that bucket filled, you're only gonna be able to relate to people as transactions to grasp and grab some kind of affirmation that they have for you. You're saying, love me, respect me, desire me. You see, take, take, take. Why? Because your bucket's not filled. In the gospel, says, you are loved for you by the one who matters most. And that can begin then to transform the love that flows out of you. So now turn over your coin to the work side. You see, it's the other side of the gospel. It's the other side of faith. Speak and act now as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Here's the big idea of this whole passage. So if you've been snoozing, time to wake up right now. Here it is. Love others with the same love you've been given through Jesus Love others with the same love you've been given. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom, the law of liberty. Let the gospel free you. Let the love you've received overflow through you. Let your outward actions toward others reflect a new inward reality. Verse 13, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Since mercy is the way that God has interacted with you, mercy should be the way that you will begin to interact with other people. Now there is a weightiness of verse 13 that I would not be loving you well if I tried to rescue you from. The way you love people, men and women, particularly those that you see as below you in some way or different from you in some way or those that you despise in some way, the way you love people is like an MRI on your heart it's a scan. If you want to know the state of your heart, I would even go so far as to say this. If you want to know whether or not you've actually been regenerated and renewed and transformed by the gospel, look at the way you love people or fail to love people. Does your attitude reflect the same mercy that you say you have received through Jesus? Now, listen, the test is not, do you love people all the time perfectly? No. That's not it. This is not, you know, hey, prove your salvation by adding good works to your faith. No, that's not it. It is an MRI. It is a scan to say, what do you actually believe? What's really true about your faith? Does your life actually show tangible evidence of a heart that is softening and being transformed? Not 100% all the time, but is there some fruit? Do you see other people's brokenness? Their tangible, material poverty, do you see in that a reflection of your own spiritual poverty? Can you you look at them and say, that's the way I am inside apart from Christ? Are you quick to move toward needy people or more likely to overlook or dismiss them? One more question, this is hard. When you encounter people who are nothing like you or seem to have nothing to offer you, do you primarily see what bothers or disgusts you or do you see in them someone whom Jesus loves? Now, let me put you back on grace here. If you're concerned about your answers, okay, if you're not sure, oh my goodness, I don't know what's in me, then you must be honest about that and throw yourself at the mercy of God in your neediness. That's a perfect posture to receive the gospel. Like, that's the posture to receive grace. Grace. That's the place you wanna be for Christ to invade your heart and begin to transform you. Some of you in this room, I say this because I love you and I care about you. Some of you in this room have been going through the motions of faith, but have never actually been transformed by genuine faith in Christ. And today's text has revealed that to you. And so here's how we wanna end. Okay, we're actually gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And so I'm gonna go ahead and ask the ushers to start getting that ready and start going ahead and passing the Lord's Supper out. Now, here's what I want to say who this is for. And just, I know there's a lot of distractions because there's people moving about the room, but but this is just so important. Here's who this is for. If you this morning are willing to say for the first time or the 10,000th time, I am spiritually impoverished. I am morally bankrupt apart from Christ. I am dirty inside. I am filthy inside and I need rescue. I need a savior. Then this table is for you. It's for you today. Some of you might be the first time you've actually really seen this and you're willing to acknowledge it and cry out for rescue. Then it's for you today. So take it take it the tray's going to be passed you're going to grab a little cracker you're going to grab a cup but i just want you to hold on to it now if you can't say that today cuz you don't believe jesus is where you need to go or you don't believe he's the savior you don't understand like what this is all about no shame this morning but just let that tray just pass by you use this time just to reflect you know if you've got even enough faith in you to cry out god you know if this is real would you help me understand it then let that be your prayer for the next 4 or 5 minutes but if you are taking elements this morning, the bread and the cup, it's a statement that you're recognizing your own spiritual need and you're crying out in faith that Jesus has rescued you. The band is going to play a song over us while the ushers pass out the trays. And then while that song is still continuing, I'm going to invite you just to pray. And there's a few ways that you can do that. We're going to invite you to, to come up, some of you, Because some of you need to take a step of faith. Just God's been doing something in your heart recently, or maybe even this morning. Maybe it's related to this text, maybe it's not related to this text, but God's been doing something in you and you need to activate that. You just need to show yourself and God, I'm hearing you and I'm gonna engage that. And if that's you, then in a moment, I'm gonna ask you just to come down. You can kneel down here. You don't have to talk to anybody. You just spend some time with God, but you need to do that out of your seat. Some of you do this morning. Now, some of you, you need to take a burden you've been carrying and invite someone else to carry that burden with you. It might not be related to today's text. It could be, but we've got some folks down here. In fact, prayer team, go ahead and come forward and they're gonna be out here in front. If you want someone to pray for, that's why they're here this morning. They're here just to pray with you. You can tell them as much or as little as you like and they'll pray for you. We even up here have a tray of the bread and the cup. If you wanna come down and pray for a while and then you wanna grab it, that's fine too. But just hold on to it, don't take it. Let's just let this time be a time of prayer all over this room. And then I'll come back up here and I'll lead us as we take the bread and the cup. Amen, let's start praying.